Um, let's see. I should have done the St. Patrick's Purim thing this week. Yeah, because I that's forgot tomorrow. what week it was. Yeah, I forgot yeah. what week it was last week. Yeah, and I live too. like an hour from Boston, <laughs> so I'm like fucked. Oh, 9-11, baby! I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I am an uh, academic uh, metadata and discovery librarian, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, guys. I'm Dan Green. I'm an assistant professor of information studies at the University of Maryland. My pronouns are he, him. Welcome. So happy to be here. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Super excited for you to be here. Yeah, I listened to your um, "Is It Tech Won't Save Us" uh, episode while I was like futzing around on the computer today. It was good, and I got my library to buy your book. So same. <laughs> Thank you. The most important request you can ask. Yeah, I was like, "Hey, Catherine, can we buy this?" And like two hours later, it's great. Yeah, so did I. Um, with my, my tiny selector budget is mostly just like these books that I don't think anyone else is going to select. So it's like, okay, well I'll do it. She actually asked me, um, if I had recommendations for books about data privacy and stuff. So I just like went on AK press (laughs) and like found anything that I could and stuff. So I'd like sent her a bunch of like, you know, radical, stuff because that's all i could think of um but yeah she she actually wanted to put more in the collection um that was about like data privacy issues and ethics and stuff i was like hell yeah i will gladly find you books nice i've discovered it's something of a cheat code where if you have a book that features librarians then it turns out they're pretty willing to stock your book Mm-hmm. Yeah, always look at the Z's in a library and uh, just see like what librarians have been buying for themselves. <laughs> That's always a fun thing to do. Uh, I didn't have a segment this week, so we can go ahead and just jump into it. So, uh, Dan, you vote for Emily. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, That's I will also endorse that as my segment. Please vote for Emily Drabinsky vote for, Emily. <laughs> for president of ALA. That's the segment. Okay. Okay. Or or don't. Don't listen to us. I don't care. Don't, don't care what we think. Um, do whatever you want. Live your own damn lives. Stop, stop listening to us for your opinions, you hogs. So you wrote a book called The Promise of Access, and I do not actually remember if there is a subtitle. There is. It goes, colon, technology, inequality, and the political economy of hope. As a person with a PhD, I am contractually obligated to put a colon in any title that I have. I always love like when I tell people my master's thesis, I always do like, like you can't see me right now, but I like do my two fingers like in a peace sign, but like vertical. So it's like colon, (laughs) (laughs) got to emphasize it. So you do like a Sailor Moon face. This is what you do. You go, no, I do this. Oh, mm, that's but a like, that means you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sailor Moon okay. is amazing. Do listen to us about going to watch Sailor Moon. That you have to yeah. do. That's our a correct opinion. Not the crystal redraw. That was bad. Right, yeah. Watch watch the original one. Nineties animation was good. So two of us were actually independently reading your book before you followed us on Twitter. And then I was like, oh, great. I can get the opportunity to have Dan on. Um, see, I just see my opening for these things sometimes. And I heard you on uh, the Tech Won't Save Us uh, podcast a, a while back uh, now. And I really enjoyed the that podcast because it really got me thinking about how we have different models of organizing, especially with community and especially when you're a service industry worker where, you know, there's, there's no factory you can lock people out of. You've got to kind of, especially if you're like a teacher or work with children or work with people's kids, even, even in universities, this still kind of happens. You're just like, look, it's good for you. It's good for us. It's good for your kids. So that's what I really wanted to dig into. But for the opening, I wanted you to sort of pitch the book to a librarian crowd and say, like, what's the pitch? What do you think library workers will get out of your book? That's great. I, I really appreciate the question because I, I think I am shocked that social scientists and honestly, the left more broadly, whatever that means, don't take libraries seriously as sites of struggle. And it, it really is where a lot of the action is. And, you know, I could fill up the room I'm in right now with ethnographies of schools or hospitals or other kinds of workplaces. But, you know, it's much harder to find good critical writing about libraries. Um, so there's one thing I wanted to provide here. Um, so The Promise of Access is a book about how the problem of poverty became a problem of technology, how we all learned that we have to learn to code or else. And there's been a lot of people much smarter than me that have debunked that claim and, and shown that, you know, obviously poverty is much more complicated than what kind of tools or skills people have. So, you know, really wonderful books by like Virginia Eubanks or Christo Sims. Uh, Morgan Ames on one laptop per child. Uh, but no matter how many times we debunk this story, it, it keeps coming back. It's got a life of its own. So instead of trying to show that poverty is more complicated than these you know, silly binaries between people with access and people without, I wanted to explain why we keep telling that story. And the explanation I, I land on is, is primarily a story about institutions and institutions that face poverty every day and take care of people as they exit the labor market or try to get back into it or prepare to go into it for the first time. And these are places like schools and libraries. So schools and libraries share a lot, uh, especially insofar as the rest of the welfare state has been totally taken apart in the last 40 years. Our teachers and our public librarians in particular, although a lot of this I think applies to university librarians as well, depending on your you know geography, you know, they have not just done the jobs that's on their job description, but they've also had to be social worker, nurse, translator, uh, health coach, job coach, all these things that, you know, people desperately need, but are not necessarily in the job description. You know, there's so much weight put on these institutions. And that also means that like the best course of action is sometimes unclear. You know, the way I talked about this in libraries is that, you know, things like, are people allowed to sleep in the library? Or are you allowed to watch porn in the library? 
And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement over that. There are really, especially in cities, the book is about Washington, D.C., um, there is really no real public space left. There's nowhere you can hang out all day and not buy anything. So it seems, uh, so many librarians take great pride in that. But on the other hand, you know, these places were overcrowded precisely because there's nowhere to go. And so sleepers may be using resources in space that other people don't want to use. Same thing with porn. You know, if the library's mission is to provide access to things that people may not have access to elsewhere, I met plenty of librarians that were like, you know, I mean, if it's not freaking anyone out directly next to the person, you're not exposing yourself, fine, whatever, go watch porn. And, you know, I spent a couple years at uh, MLK Library, the central branch of DC Public Libraries, and it was, you know, every single day I'm there, you find some dude watching porn or room with 150 other people. Probably has nowhere else to do it. But on the other hand, you know, that's not being productive. You wouldn't necessarily do that at the office. So they have all of this pressure on them. These like um, pressures of austerity, pressures of legitimacy, you know, who needs the library if you've got Wikipedia. Um, and these pressures about uh, which way you're supposed to go in your mission. And those pressures mean that people are in search for a solution and they're in search for models. And this model, what I call the access doctrine, you get the right tools, you get the right skills, and you'll be safe in a really uncertain, risky economy. That starts to seem like a great idea. And it's not because every librarian or every teacher is tricked by this. They buy it wholesale. Everyone who works on the ground knows how complicated the problem of poverty is. You are, you know, I, librarians that I work with and uh, are, I'm a former social worker, are effectively social workers. DC public libraries, especially the MLK Central Branch, became effectively the largest homeless day shelter in the city. They know how big the problem is and how serious the problem is, but they are desperate for something that's going to bring resources to the space, legitimacy to the space, and some kind of clarity to their demands. And that's what the Access Doctrine provides. Because when you start to focus your mission around teaching people to code, giving them access to tech that can get them jobs, supposedly, then that's the sort of thing that donors and politicians look kindly on. So you might get resources. MLK Library um, started to shift its programming and got a long overdue renovation that was hundreds of millions of dollars. It provides political legitimacy. You know, these places start to look like the future things that other government agencies or private companies or, you know, NGOs might want to participate in. And it makes your job simpler. So that question about like, well, I don't know, who should sleep in the library? That becomes easy to answer. You wouldn't sleep at the office. That's not productive. So kick somebody out. And over the years that I spent at MLK uh, interviewing librarians and patrons, we saw that as the library kind of embraced this vision of itself as a skills training center, there was less and less room for people to just hang out. You know, you would get kicked out if you were sleeping, police more hard if you were watching porn, snacks, those kind of things. So I trace these kind of influences um, across these different field sites and show how like people and ideas and money move between the tech sector, education, and libraries, and force them to adapt to this system. And that's my story for how this idea that we can solve poverty by teaching people to code, giving them the right tools and skills, that's where that idea comes from. It's not because any of us are tricked. It's because we have to tell that story in order to keep our institutions alive. As a matter of um, political organizing, what I'm trying to do here 
is explain how and why institutions function the way they do. That is kind of a level of analysis above the motivations of individual participants and below the big structural stories about you know, racial capitalism or something like that. These institutional policies about, you know, where the money goes, who gets uh, which jobs, uh, what our mission is, those are the things where something like racial capitalism becomes a real active force in everyday people's lives and persists beyond the people who are currently in the institution. You know, you could fire everybody in there and these effects would still remain because the pressures on the institution remain the same. And I think that by exposing these kinds of pressure points we start to learn how we might change them in the future. So if these are the kind, if uh, our training mechanisms and the kind of bridging organizations that connect um, schools to tech or business, things like TFA or the Brood Institute are influencing places to embrace this mission, then those become targets politically. And also by telling this story of how people get brought together into a mission that degrades all of their experiences. So patrons get less out of the library. Workers get less out of their job. You know, they're not there to, I'm going to go ahead and guess that none of you signed up as librarians to like, you know, punish people for sleeping or watching porn. That's like not why you got into the job, right? I want them to watch porn. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's your mission. Yeah. That's my mission. And you know, when we realize that those things are degrading us both, we realize that our struggles are connected, that they intersect at these particular institutions. Uh, teachers unions have a familiar line for this. You know, we say that my working conditions or my students' learning conditions. Our struggles are not the same. You know, we can have very different struggles, like the things that patrons need out of the library may be different from what the workers need out of the library. But nonetheless, they intersect that space, and thus they could build power with each other. And this is something that makes schools and libraries as these community sites, sites of what you know Marxist feminists call social reproduction, really, really special. You know, because what's the first thing that you know the mayor, the you know superintendent is going to say if teachers or librarians go on strike? You know, y'all are greedy. You're just trying to get more money, and it's hurting kids. So there's no way that you're going to win unless you have your patrons or students on your side. Or a big campaign of fuck them kids. We just yes. all print that out and just <laughs> and just start setting like all the trash cans on fire in the neighborhood. And- yeah, I mean, it seemed to work okay um, <laughs> for the Republicans sometimes. So, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it might be worth a shot. I'm just saying, do entryism in the Republicans. I'm telling you, vote red. Sure, vote red, <laughs> fuck them kids. <laughs> So you, they, you need them and they need you because while they have numbers, you know, obviously there's more patrons or more students or more family members than there are workers. The workers obviously occupy a strategic position there. You know, the library doesn't run without them. The school doesn't run without them. So I, I hope that that kind of horizontal solidarity, I need you and you need me, that kind of thing can defeat the, the vertical paternal relationships that run our schools and libraries right now. You know, I have the knowledge and the tech in my head, you know, me, smart white guy, me, give you code, you know, you survive, you know, you, you get to eat now. That's a transaction, you know, to, to really transform these spaces. We need to have these kind of persistent horizontal relationships with each other. We recognize that, you know, we're not the same. Our struggles are different, but we need each other. 
And that can sound kind of far-fetched, but it is, you know, it's something that has happened in libraries before. There was a big wave of library strikes when public sector unionism got legal in the U.S. Um, and it's something that happens in schools, you know, all the time. You know, if you told me 10 years ago that we'd see a wave of teacher strikes across like Arizona, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, you know, I would ask what you were smoking. Like it's like it is, it was really insane. And the, that shows that the appetite is there and that people are starting to realize that this kind of um, strategic value is there. So honestly, like I, my pitch is that I think if we are going to have a shot, not just as professionals in schools and libraries, but as a larger left, um, our Soviets are going to be in schools, in libraries, in hospitals, in clinics, in nursing homes, in these places that do social reproduction, that make people and bring together the struggle of workers with the community around them. That's the pitch. The one time I don't have the Soviet national anthem on my drops. <laughs> Gender? What is this? Soviet Russia? Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Jay, you were wanting to jump in? Yeah. So, um, Something you said so about like how we know that getting all the the um, the fancy shinies might not be what our community needs, but we know that we might not be able to get money w- without them, right? Like that's what funders and donors look at, and I feel like that is exactly what has happened in a lot of like humanities disciplines, especially English departments and universities. Um, and I I wish universities and public libraries would like talk more because I feel like agreed. There's some- yeah, there's something there, yeah. especially because like state, you know, public universities have the public in them. But anyway, and and many state um, public uh, university libraries are functionally public libraries. Yeah, you know, like, I, they act that way. I know a um, a a woman who uh, works at like a tribal college library, mm-hmm. and that's like the only library around. So that you know, she also has to know how to do like children's programming. Like, so this was one reason I was actually very like anti-digital humanities for years because i was like this is just like people aren't going to give us money unless there's like code and software involved like you know what am i doing like because all i knew it was like it's like text mining hottie trust like it was like like stupid crap i didn't like care about i didn't know about all of the other like cool um like critical and radical digital humanities that was happening and justin i'm sure you have experienced the same thing in like history so yeah, it's like I was at the University of Utah when they got their like digital matters lab, and where I'm at now, our um, you know our dean is very she really wants a digital humanities lab when what the faculty ask for like on campus is like they just want like the tools they don't need like a space to do it right yeah or like you know like working air conditioning or <laughs> right yeah like better bathrooms in the library that would be nice. But yeah, so this sort of like wave of like, we know it's bullshit. Like some of it can be really cool. Like I'm not trying to like diss like cool tech stuff. I I do the cool tech stuff too. Um, I'm like working on like a digital scholarship project right now. But the sort of like having to be complicit in like this neoliberalism of like playing into this crap. uh, I see it everywhere. Like it's not just like, oh, the innovation keyword right now is makerspaces, so we have to get makerspaces kind of thing. So yeah, I wish there would be more of that like horizontal solidarity, not even just like within like public libraries and schools, but like with universities uh, in those areas as well, because I think there could be some really powerful work that happens there. And then my second point, so 
you're talking about how it's like we know that this sort of like divide of you know how to do the code or you don't know how to do the code like it's more complicated than that but it keeps popping up and like you emphasize like if you you know oh if you just have the right tools then you'll you know you'll be able to code your way out of poverty um like i know that people who do similar jobs to me make um thirty thousand dollars more than i do just because they have business analyst in their title and not metadata whatever and it was just reminding me of like even when we know that that whole like if you you know code yourself out of poverty thing even if we know it's bullshit we're still kind of giving legitimacy to the idea that like the tools themselves have meaning even by like denouncing them like even by going like oh you don't need to you know know how to code like it's more complicated than that or whatever it's still like giving legitimacy to this idea of like it's the tool that matters and not like what you're trying to do with the tool um and so i think that maybe like reframing that whole discussion of like oh do you know python or what is it that you want to do and can python help you with with that kind of um mindset this has been something i've been thinking about a lot this week actually but yeah i don't know how that plays into it because it was like the whole like techno fetishism and like you know the hip, former hippies who turned into steve jobs kind of people yeah for sure um, yeah. no 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 I, I appreciate that i mean the book is uh intensely autobiographical you know, I come from American cultural studies where, you know, we are often a clearinghouse for things like black studies and queer studies, labor studies on, on campus. And, and we have absolutely received those pressures where, you know, we're not going to get the money unless we are, you know, suddenly a media production department or something like that. And I, I now work at an iSchool, which is an incredibly fun place to be where we, you know, I work with lots of different kinds of people that all do different kinds of work, but because it's a place that is uh, kind of in formation and making itself, it is also the home to every single buzzword in the, in the dictionary and plenty that I haven't heard of. So yeah, I think, and I hope that people see the relevancy outside of um, schools and libraries to many other kinds of institutions. The, I, I really take what you said about the giving agency to the tool, because if the problem was as simple as getting rid of the tools or proving that they don't do what other people say they do. We would have won a long time ago. You know, it's, that's, that's not that hard. You know, I mean, it's even just like, you know, basic kind of labor market predictions make this stuff pretty clear. There's just not enough coding jobs to go around. You know, most jobs that are getting produced in the next 10 years, just like the last 10 years are in crap, low wage jobs in food service and health. They mostly do not require a college degree. 20 years ago, they wouldn't have required a high school degree. If we're flooding the world with software developers, then all that's going to do is bring down the average software developer wage. This is not a long-term solution. But ultimately, because of these institutional pressures, you know, the, the fact of public austerity, the fact that there really are not enough good jobs to go around, that makes this story really attractive no matter what. So it's ultimately impossible to disprove. You know, so like, let's say we like convince everybody that there's not actually a gap for software developers right now, or there's not actually a STEM gap, which there is not. Most people of STEM degrees work outside of STEM. We, you know, companies uh, provide these narratives in part to save money on training 
average time of training has gone through the floor. The way you get a promotion is by leaving the company now um, and by lowering the cost of workers. You know, this is always the justification for like H-1B visas. It's like, there's not enough scientists in America. So we need to, you know, recruit cheap people from abroad and then throw them out as soon as we're done with them. Let's say we convinced everyone that that was wrong. The economy would still suck. Our public institutions would still uh, have their budgets slashed constantly. And you know what would happen? Like next year, there would be an augmented reality gap. And that's happening at my university right now. You know, the Oculus guy bought us like a chunk of a new computer science building. And guess what? You know, we have a new augmented reality program to train the desperately needed augmented reality professionals of the future because, God, we are just not keeping up with the augmented reality push in China or whatever. So it's it's going to keep happening. It's it's not going to stop. Um, and that's why it's, I think, important to shift the conversation less from, from rebutting this to more about the kind of power that can hopefully stop it. And that is not to say that we throw away this tech in any way, but that we instead try to broaden our story of what it can be used for. Because I think one of the sad things is that, especially in, in public libraries and public schools, we end up limiting our imagination so much about what the, all of our cool tools can do. We don't get to yeah, this play shit is with fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't get to play. And there's so much more we could be doing for ourselves, for our communities, if we weren't just focused on like teaching people the things that they need to get a software developer job. Yeah, I was just thinking what you can do with the Oculus Lab is I just imagine that scene from The Simpsons where they're they uh He's in the uh, garden simulator. No, no, no. It's <laughs> the uh, the future of warfare is robots, and your job will be to maintain those robots. I say you should do that and say we need you in these these virtual world jobs because the future is VTuber model artists and furry artists, and we need you to learn how to graft paratits onto a raccoon in three D. More trans cat girls. <laughs> You're joking, but everybody has a uh, esports team now, so you know I think there's going to be uh, plenty of trans cat girls at the you know NCAA esports tournament in 2035. My dad has half a million followers on TikTok. Like, good for him. Yeah, he's not like a, a trans cat girl VTuber, but at least I don't <laughs> I think so. To say, <laughs> get him out. Is my dad an egg? I don't think so. Um, but yeah, like he's like in his fifties and he's like making a big on TikTok. It's the weirdest thing. That's yeah, it's so weird. Funny. I know, right? Does he do the dances? Is that why? No, um, he does a lot of like duets with like about political things, and then also he's a you know he's a country musician and he's a really good singer and guitar player, and so he'll just like sing things and and play his guitar and stuff. My wife's pretty pretty on TikTok. I'm gonna have to see if if uh, I can find him through her. <laughs> I will send him to you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I had to get off TikTok. It was ruining my brain. It's really Same. good it if you're like hungover me. and can't do anything. Like you can literally only do this motion. But like, it really it scares that, me. Like I I find it in- overwhelming, and I don't know how anyone keeps up with it. Yeah, it's but I also cool. was like, I was very scared the first time I saw like my little cousins like watching someone else play Minecraft on YouTube. So I, at, at this point, I'm just kind of aging into it. <laughs> yeah, but um, something you said in the book um, and just now was about you know skilling up at your own time and at your own expense. And this was also something you mentioned in terms of rejecting people from services saying like, well, you need to be doing the startup culture. So you need to be, if you're on welfare, you need to be applying for benefits 14 hours a day. And like, that's treated like your day job. 
God. And uh, I've said this before. I don't remember what when this came up, but you know that's not a particularly liberatory vision for libraries. Is that we will throw you back into capitalism? And kind of your thesis in the book is like there is no outside the labor force. Everyone, because of the Clintons, like many of these problems can be traced back to them. No one is ever allowed to be outside the labor force. You are no longer unemployed. You are now like on workfare. You are you are going to interviews for jobs. You are uh, like like when I was unemployed, I didn't apply for unemployment because like I would have to have done all of this. Yeah, it's a ton of work. It's it's, it's, just, it's I mean so I think much work. And I was like, I wanna, like yeah. professionals yeah. don't realize is just like being poor in America is a ton of work. So much work. Yeah, I went on unemployment. Um, so when my previous position, I was in a residency. And so that's like a, it was like a two year contract term. It's not like I got fired or anything. I knew when my job would end and my lease ended at the same time. But guess who didn't get a job offer in time? Like, and so then I was like applying for things. And I didn't know that you had to apply to so many things per week, It, but it had to be like in your field. And it's like, there's not that many metadata jobs out there there's just not it was like the worst thing in the entire world i hated it and if you're in the wrong state it's those same restrictions for food stamps Mm -hmm. medicare and medicaid everything i mean i i think like justin to your point like the the real innovation one one of the things the book tries to do is to tell us that like we have made a big mistake in talking about technology policy is somehow separate from poverty policy and the one of the big innovations that the Clinton administration did was to really kind of uh, tell a much more hopeful story about poverty in the new economy, because you know once the, once the wheels fall off the bus in the seventies, you know it's we just have a bunch of people that do not fit in the new service based economy. We have deindustrialized real hard. There are not enough good jobs to go around. And the Republicans have a very good, uh, very racist answer for that, which is, you know, if you're not actively working, you know, lock them up. And that is satisfying, but it is not, uh, it's a little contradictory, right? Like it kind of contradicts with mourning in America and all that. You know, on the one hand, you can get uh, America's land of promise. You can get any job you want, anywhere you want. You just got to hustle for it. On the other hand, uh, screw up once and we'll throw you in a cage. And the way the Clintons kind of navigated that, like Gore being really important here too, is to say that, look, we have the internet now. And wherever the internet touches, you have access to global labor markets. So wherever there's internet, there is jobs because you will be able to compete with people in, in Europe and Africa and Latin America. And if you choose not to do that, they frame it as a choice, then you are a drag on local and national economic competitiveness. And so you need to be contained. And so they start to talk about poverty policy as kind of like a triage kind of thing. And it's it's important that we recognize that their like commercialization of the internet, all their big digital divide reports, the stuff that basically founds my field, all of that is happening at the same time as they're going on a prison building spree, as they're securing the border, as they're ending welfare as we know it. So I was kind of thinking about Two things. Um, first, of you know, the if you're not working, we're going to throw you in a cage, and you know, part of that is we're going to then force you to work while you're in that cage and pay underpay you, and basically, you know, that's that's where your "Made in America" label comes from. Isn't from actual, you know, people happy at their jobs doing doing their work. It's from incarcerated people doing the work. So yeah, it's a whole loop there. 
Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask is like in the notes here, we have universal service over like sort of the, to, like moving towards universal access over universal service. And do you like, do you think that we missed like the stop on the, the journey to be able to take like something like broadband and make it more of like a public utility as opposed to this commercial thing? And like, like how, I don't know, is that, would that be, would that have been better? Would that have been good? Would that have been like, you know, completely neutral to how things have like developed now? I was just kind of curious that your take on that. Uh, yeah. That idea. Yeah. That's, that's a really good question. I mean, like, well, first to the, to the prison labor point, like I'm, I'm sure that um, anyone here that works at a state university, like the, the likelihood is that all your furniture is made by prisoners. Um, and, and that. It, that's a crime, but it can also give us a kind of a skewed perspective on on what daily life is like in prison. Um, and I think Ruthie Gilmore makes this point really well in that, like, you know, when you actually talk to people in lockup um, or after they get out, the overwhelming experience is of inactivity and boredom and containment. There, it, most people are not working most of the time in prison. Um, it, it really, it, there, there are lots of reasons for our, our prison boom, but. I cannot emphasize how much of it is to really contain the working and workless poor who otherwise have nowhere else to go. And I, I think Golden Gulag, um, Ruthie's book, is is the best story about that. As far as the whether we miss the boat on a on a true utility, it's you know on the one hand I'm a Marxist and I'm saying like, well, you know, history happens in order; it happens for a reason. But I, I think like it's it's pretty obvious that other countries went a different way and. Even within, you know, a, a fairly market-oriented version of capitalism. Um, so, in the book, the main comparison I, I do in, in the history chapter that tells the story of technology policy as poverty policies with Brazil. Um, so, when we were uh, founding our kind of digital divide policy in the '90s um, and the early 2000s, uh, Brazil and first in a fairly neoliberal government, and then if a more developmentalist government when Lula got in were pursuing a much more kind of community-oriented digital divide policy that established community centers that had not just uh, internet-connected computers, but a full kind of wraparound service model that people could go to. You know, you could register to vote, blah, 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 the real community spaces that were just kind of anchored by internet connections. I mean, in the US, we barely have internet cafes that the rest of the world had. But even in like more market-oriented economies in, you know, in South Korea and Western Europe, like they beat the pants off of us in terms of like how good our internet is. Like we have some of the slowest, most expensive internet in the OECD. And it's entirely because we told this lie about how infrastructure gets built and how those markets get built. You know, you get to, especially in Al Gore stuff and in the FTC in their era, you start to really see them entirely rewrite the history of the telephone and start to tell the history of the telephone as this like a magical market phenomenon that, you know, through the magic of competition, we made sure that everybody got a phone line and we're going to do that with the internet. And that's a lie. Like it's, you know, the, the phone in the U.S. was a state-sanctioned monopoly. You know, we, that was the whole reason to kind of set up the FCC originally was to say like, look, we're going to give Bell a monopoly on all the phone lines. Just promise us you're going to try to get it to everybody. Okay. And so what we do with the internet is to say that 
everybody must get online in order to compete, but also competition is the best way to extend it to everybody. So that moment where we say that this is an essential public good is also the moment where we completely deregulate all telecom markets so that, you know, a cable company can buy a satellite company who can buy a TV company or whatever. And then we get to the point where we are now where most people have like one, maybe two choices for consumer internet. This got really stark in the, in the pandemic when, you know, in my county, there's probably 100,000 kids, 120,000 kids in Prince George's County public schools. And when we had to send everybody home, we recognized correctly that a lot of those kids don't have home internet. So we sent these hotspots. But because of Monopoly, really only one person you get the hotspots from. And guess what? Hotspots don't work. So you got to send them back. And, you know, kids are without internet for weeks or months at a time. So we, we tell these lies about how infrastructure works in order to advance this kind of market-oriented vision. And then it fails miserably on its own terms. So, you know, I, I there are plenty of examples of places that have done it differently, both as developing economies and as more, you know, mature market economies. But when you look at everything else, so history could have been different. But when you look at everything else the Clinton administration was doing at that time, it is hard to see that particular political coalition anchored by very much elites in tech and finance at the top and the so-called Atari Democrats, the you know new office park workers at the bottom. It's hard to believe that those people would have pursued the internet as a public utility. You know, I think it, it is possible. Other places show us that it's possible, but it would have required a very different outcome in the class war. Yeah, this is something I wanted to ask you about, which was you were talking about how the Clinton administration onward, the Democrats have tried to organized around white collar tech workers and have made them sort of the mobilizing base of their electoral strategy and thus therefore representing what they're interested in, which is, you know, I'm honestly surprised like Democrats didn't go full in on like Bitcoin and NFTs at this point. Um, I think maybe they just forgot to do that. I think it's because they're half of the, the other half of their coalition is in finance and Bitcoin and mm. NFTs are not always beloved by the big banks. Gotcha. Even though the big banks and things are getting into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depends on the bank. Yeah. Yeah. But what will happen as tech workers, as like everyone becomes a tech worker, then the field becomes proletarianized. And I, I had the example in the notes. Every video game company moves headquarters every few years to a new city where developers have slightly lower wages. It doesn't matter the tax incentives. It doesn't matter the country. It doesn't matter the infrastructure. It's just how much is a game developer paid in a city? Let's find the lowest one. And then we're moving a new, we're building a new office there. So San Francisco to Austin, to Vancouver, to Montreal, same for movie animators, legions of these people. Every movie has CGI. There's there's tons of these artists out there, and there none of them are unionized. So, and that's why it's all CGI and not practical effects. Yes, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, when you know what will happen then to that coalition? Do you think that's a really good question? And I, I, I think it comes down to like how you think about like class and what class is. You know, are the workers on Mechanical Turk who are getting paid pennies to decide whether this picture in a Google image is a, a bridge or a sand dune, you know, are they in tech? Yeah. I mean, they're obviously essential to the uh, continuing existence of these giant software development firms. Um, but I, I think we often make a mistake in the U S of uh, thinking about class 
in these broadly like sociological terms as like distinct like chunks of people or even distinct individuals. You know, you you work in uh, hospitality, ergo you are a food service worker, um, ergo you are a lower class. Well, what if you manage the restaurant? What if you own the restaurant? You know that that kind of stuff. So instead of those kind of things, I we, I always want to try to think of class um, inspired here by a old Marxist named Richard Gunn as uh, as a relationship. You know, you're, you're somewhere in the labor capital relationship. Um, so it's really about your relationship to other people inside and outside of work. And then the simplest way to think about that is like, you know, are you given orders or are you taking orders? But in, in that kind of view, it's not people who work with computers that the Democrats have gone after. It's a specific group of professionals who are very different from the New Deal coalition that was working class and, you know, to a degree multiracial. Not every part of the coalition liked each other, but it was a multiracial coalition. And the core of the Democratic Party these days, and, and this is very visible around like the, the DC suburbs where I live. You could also look at, you know, suburbs around Boston, um, Jay or uh, Silicon Valley, um, around Charlotte, uh, or uh, the Research Triangle. The class we're talking about here is not strictly like people who uh, use computers, but people who are largely autonomous and usually choose their tasks. They um, gained their skills via formal education rather than any kind of apprenticeship program. They owe no fealty to unions. Their uh, workplaces are largely non-union because they're white, because they uh, had, because they're largely white, because they uh, largely went to good schools, because they largely have middle-class jobs. They often have quite a lot of wealth. They're largely homeowners. They live in the suburbs. They commute. Um, these folks are all about equal protection under the law. You know, they never want housing discrimination, but redistributive measures that could upset them, you know, like building apartments in their neighborhood doing two-way busing that integrates the schools. You know, that's beyond the pale. So it's, you know, it's it's these group of people who are, um, you know, what, what the Aaron Ricks called the, the professional managerial class that are designing the workplaces for other people, that are making the tools, the policies, the ideas, the institutions um, that organize other people's work. You know, someone like me, like a teacher or like you guys um, in libraries are very much part of that class too. But there's a, there's a, a lot of breakdowns in that class that are happening right now. I mean, the whole, the whole point of the Aaron developing that, that PMC concept was to say like, well, you know, what, what has changed over time and what is happening in the future? So absolutely, a lot of these folks are being proletarianized right now. And that is, I think, I would credit that almost entirely with like the resurgence in um, democratic socialism in the US and the DSA and, and almost entirely with the Bernie Sanders campaign is this group of people, you know, I'm going to guess, including me and, and you three, that will sometimes call like the downies, you know, people who are downwardly mobile with uh, respect to their class position um, and who would have had a different class position uh, a couple decades ago, or, you know, maybe their parents are more secure than they were, but they have, uh, you know, the, the archetypical examples here is someone with a, you know, master's degree who's working at Starbucks. And that's not any fault of them. It's just a shitty economy. But those folks have been slowly proletarianized. And the same thing has happened in our schools and libraries. Our jobs have started to suck more. Where that fits into the class war is that 
I think me and you guys as teachers and librarians have a different relationship to the rest of the working class than those professionals who are in software development, um, who are in, you know, in law or medicine or, or whatever. So the example I use in the book is that the, the startup that I spent a lot of time at to kind of understand this like ideal type organization was in, um, they basically make catering software, like, you know, it's just like for event planning kind of stuff. And they, all the software developers there were, were very honest about like, okay, our job is to automate people's jobs away. Like to, you know, make sure that like all of this can be set up by two people instead of 10 people. But the people that they're bossing around are at a remove. You know, they're, they're far away. They'll never meet them. The people that I boss around in a classroom are right in front of me. The people that you guys boss around in the library are right in front of you. And that means that you could decide to have a different relationship with them. You know, because they're right in front of you, because the stakes are right there, you got, there is something that you could collaborate on, some sort of cross-class, cross-race, cross-profession, probably cross-geography because you live in different places, relationship that is just not present for other people in your class. So that's why I want to always want to talk about classes, this kind of like richly textured thing that is not so much about like your job classification, but like who you work with, how much power you have, who tells you what to do and whether you tell anybody else to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And I can see that. And I've, I've toyed with bringing up the, our librarians, PMCs discourse before, but we never really had a reason to jump into it. So I'm really glad you laid it out like that. And that would give us something to maybe launch off of in the future when, when it comes up again. I would, I would love to revisit it because I, I think it is, I have a zest for these uh, debates that have gotten like totally mind numbing on Twitter, but are actually like really important. Like emotional labor is the same way. Everything's emotional labor right now, but it's a really important concept, you know, and it's really important to understand like when most of us, you know, are trying to make people smile for a living. Same thing with PMC. Absolutely driven into the ground on Twitter, but like, you know, like you're saying, man, like there is a, a class of people whose jobs have progressively begun to suck. And we should be able to explain that historically. Yeah, and I like the way that you're framing class and stuff because there's always these like bullshit discourse threads on Twitter where it's like about like who who gets to be a proletariat, who gets to be who who is bourgeois, and it's like school teachers are bourgeois now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> um, it's like the new what's hot, what's not list for 2022. Right, right, because you know they because they're like not you know coal mining or or something that that makes them the bourgeoisie yes unless you are picking the scraps of clothing off of dead people in the river thames you are not a proletarian right exactly if you make more than fifty thousand dollars a year you are no longer proletariat right like be you know that kind of discourse um but like i think framing it not just as like the type of labor you do and not even just, I mean, not to be like, Oh, the rich people are proletarian now, but like, and not even necessarily like your income bracket, but like your relation in that system as like class and like putting it in context with everything else and not just where you are at that moment in time. If I'm understanding what you're, you're saying correctly. Yeah, totally. It's hard yeah. to, it's a hard thing to survey people about, you know, unless you're asking them like, you know, how much does your job suck? Can you choose when you have a break? Like the whole like bullshit job, uh, concept too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I had something in here about how historical changes in office labor have been over the 
because of telecommunications. Uh, I, I don't remember where I read this, but someone was writing about how if you worked in an office before like faxes, your work usually ended in the early afternoon because the mail came in the morning, you finished everything, and then everything went to go out of, of the mail room at the end of the day. So like you were, I think that's why everyone was like in those old dramas, like just drinking in the middle of the day. Cause like they're done with work for the day. So you can just like take a two, two o'clock nap after you drink like your fifth whiskey in, in the office. And there's a bunch of other good jobs around because you know, if you're a drunk who gets fired from this job, guess what? There's another good one down the street. Yeah. But since that way of labor has like changed and like you're always online, you can't, there's no factory to lock people out of. So like, even if you go on strike, it's like, you know, if you get an email at four 30, you're expected to answer it but until 5 PM. Like what There's would no- Roger and me look like today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's no outside of the workplace itself. So you have to do this community organizing. I think uh, that was just something I, I was, I think about a lot about how work culture has changed because yeah. of the internet, especially. Yeah. And I, I think like to, to Jay, what you were saying before, like to understand, I, I would not lay that solely on the feet of the internet, but to say like, okay, the internet emerged as part of the class war and is always going to be a part of the class war. So to what ends was that put, you know? And when economic growth is real low, uh, when you're not getting enhanced productivity anywhere, like, cause you know, which is what our, our economy has been pretty stagnant for about 40 years. What are you going to do? Yeah. You can't make people work better, produce more because it's, you know, it's service work. It's hard to automate. And in general, we haven't really invented anything super productive in the last 30 years. So you just make them work more. <laughs> you just like make stretch their hours as far as you possibly can. Um, and that, that was, I think one of the scarier things that I saw about schools and libraries adapting the, the model of startup culture and the organizational structure of startup culture. Um, so this, the school that I spent a year at, um, that I called Du Bois in the book had a, uh, student behavior monitoring system um, that was kind of the back end for, for everything, for discipline, for grades, for all that stuff. And it was called school force. And it was all it was was just a skin on uh, Salesforce, which is a, a customer relationship management software that the startup um, down the street that I had spent time at in crowd was using. And so they were directly using a tool that this uh, basically catering company had been using to manage its sales uh, to instead manage their students and teachers effectively because student data is always used to evaluate teachers. And that then leads to these kind of like always on work cultures, both for students and teachers. You know, if you, um, there are plenty of charter schools that require uh, teachers to give out their number to students and to pick up the phone or answer that email at any time because we're all in it together. We're all family here, which is, of course, the exact same thing that startups say. So that's what I mean when the, this kind of uh, work culture like degrades both the the worker and the person that they're supposedly serving, you know, their students and or their patrons. And I, I think like that's that gets real depressing real fast. I mean, the book is is consciously written as a tragedy about a city that I deeply love. But I, I think like when one of the reasons that I, I try to say that everything is class war all the time 
is because that makes it clear that none of this is inevitable. None of this has to be this way. It is just an outcome of that war at this particular stage, which means that if that war was waged differently, if perhaps we won it some of the time, it could be different. And I think libraries, perhaps above any other space in contemporary capitalism, you can you can see little glimpses of what it would look like if we won the class war, you know, where people are, are just allowed to chill, you know, where, where people come in with the absolute weirdest question that is not productive and, and which they're going to waste hours on trying to figure out like what, I don't know, like whether their grandpa was on the, you know, CCNY baseball team and 19 dickety two. It's beautiful that they can come to that space and do that. It is a really, truly amazing thing that we can hold in common. Like I, I really loved what Emily said on your guys' show um, a couple episodes ago, or, or most recently, where it's like, you know, these are little glimpses of the world that we could have, and that's real, you know. And there are really are moments in my classroom that feel the same way. And so the job for workers and patrons here is to take over these places and grow those moments not just within our institution, but once we've taken over those institutions, to use those as staging areas to take over everything else and to spread those little moments of, of, of uselessness, of play, of, of community. They should be everywhere. And I think we're, we can be strongest in our schools and libraries. That's where we start. Great. I know you got to go. So we always have our action-oriented question, uh, which I think you've mostly answered uh, throughout our chat today. But um, what should be the line libraries take when organizing with their communities? What should be the focus? What's uh, our pitch to our communities? That's uh, that's a really good question. I, I think like that's a thing. I mean, this is kind of a cop-out answer, but it, it's because even just the public library is extraordinarily different in different geographies. It's going to really depend on your patrons, but what needs to happen is a version of what teachers say, which is my working conditions are your learning conditions. You know, my, I I think like something along the lines of like my workspace is your community space. You know, like when my job sucks, (laughs) your community sucks. And that story has been told. I, I think like the um, the campaign, the uh, New Orleans librarians and um, New Orleans DSA ran um, to preserve library funding there was uh, extraordinary in this regard. You know, if, if you guys don't know, there was the, basically a, a referendum on whether to eliminate, um, it's like a specific property tax that funds libraries, just classic austerity tactic. You know, if you, if you want to make an institution easy to destroy, identify one single place where the money comes from. And so the mayor was like, well, you know, it's COVID, like we need to cut stuff. Hey, let's vote on it. Do you guys want lower taxes? And in America, obviously you expect everyone to say, hell yeah, lower my taxes. But there was an incredible door knocking campaign from, from DSA and uh, library workers in New Orleans. And they beat it. They beat it handily because they told that story of like the, these ghouls are trying to take away your community space and they're making my job suck for it. So I'm going to fight for you, but I need you to fight for me. Cause you know, there's only a couple of me, but there's a lot of you guys. So I think that's my pitch. I wonder like just that thought because my previous library passed a levy pretty 
much on that line. Like if you give us more money, we can pay the people that live in your communities more money. Basically, we can raise wages and reinstate, you know, cost of living and that kind of thing. And it worked. But also, uh, we had every library helping us with that campaign. And I, of course, wasn't privy to it, but I wonder how much that kind of line is being used by every library who has seen a lot of success with this sort of thing. So instead of just necessarily levies, but also as community organizing. Yeah, I just really like that. It's important. And I I think like as much as we can make, I mean, the, the thing about the community, making it a community organizing pitch is that like, it's a way to build power in the future because even if you win that, let, let's say you win that levy without having a conversation with anybody. Well, all right, you got your money, but what if they try to take it away next time? You don't have any new friends. If you make it a community organizing project and you're having that conversation with everybody and they're getting them to come to the cookout, to come to the book sale, whatever, you got a lot of new friends. So even if you lose, you're stronger than you were before. And if you win, you're definitely stronger. Great. Uh, is there anything you wanted to plug or direct our listeners to uh, before we go? Uh, I really appreciate being able to come on here and talk about the promise of access. Um, I also adore talking about the promise of access with um, local libraries and uh, classes. Um, I'm doing a bunch of like local library talks about it. I've got one in like a local library system in Vermont in two weeks. So I'm always happy to come talk to people about this stuff. I'm really passionate about it. And the other thing I would say is vote Emily Drabinsky for president of ALA, the class war candidate. And listen to this podcast while you're at work. Do some time theft. It'll be great. <laughs> yes, I just absolutely. realized that drop didn't go through. Yeah. Yeah. Still time. It's your time. It was stolen from me first. Steal it back. Hell All yeah. right. Good night.